This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who has no use for the right to be forgotten because I am unforgettable. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power, change, and the people you need to know around the tech industry. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, we have two interviews for you. Later in the show, you'll hear my conversation with Seema Sueco and Sharon Rostein, the director and playwright of a fantastic new play called Right to be Forgotten. But first, we're going to play an interview I conducted with the writer and star of another great play, What the Constitution Means to Me. Her name is Heidi Schreck, and she took the name of the play from a series of debate competitions that she competed in when she was a teenager. As an adult, her understanding of the Constitution has become more complicated. She calls it a beautiful document, but has had to confront the ways in which it doesn't protect and may actively hurt women and people of color in America. Heidi, welcome to Recode Decode. Thanks for having me. So I am, I'm a huge fan. This, this show was astonishing. I saw it in New York, um, and now it just ended its run. Is that correct? At the Kennedy Center. Yes, we just finished on Sunday. Yeah, how do you feel about that? So many feelings. I, uh, I'm ready for a break. I've been doing the show... Uh, for nearly two years now, mm-hmm. pretty And exhausted. you conceived of it before, right? Uh, yes, I've been working on it for over 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm ready for a, a, a vacation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, it's also, yeah, I feel a little sad not knowing when I'll perform it again or if I will perform now, it gonna again. We're going to get into how you created it, but will other people be performing? Yes. So yes, how does that work? Because it is about you and your, your journey, your constitutional journey. Yes, it is. Uh, I mean— well, we're going to find out how it works. Uh, we have cast a fantastic actress for the first two um, productions coming up in Los Angeles mm-hmm. and in Chicago. Right. And so I'm working with her right now. She will play me. You know, it, it is a play. It's constructed mm-hmm. like a play. Right. Um, so, But there will be a point in the um, show when she sort of steps out and talks about her own life in relationship to the Constitution. I so we're, we're working on that right now um, because the play is such a personal piece. And part of what I hope people will take away from it is that they leave thinking, how does my own life, my own story connect to this document? How do the lives of my ancestors connect to this document? I want to make sure that the person playing me gets to step out for a moment and draw that line. Right, and then the whole debate thing. But let's start with you creating it. We'll talk a little bit about how you conceived of the show and why this, and your background, where, where you were before this. Sure. Uh, I mean, I grew up in a, a tiny town in Washington State mm-hmm. called Wenatchee. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty conservative little town. Um, uh, and when I was a teenager, my mom 
who was a debate coach and a theater teacher, came up with a scheme to help me pay for college, mm-hmm. which was she told me about this contest called the American Legion Oratory Contest, where you give speeches about the Constitution at Legion Halls for mm-hmm. prize money. And the prizes were great. It was, you know, I think if you won national, it was $18,000, which mm-hmm. at that time, this was the 80s, was a huge amount of money for college. So I did that between the ages of 14 and 17. Mm-hmm throughout my entire high school career. And uh, it was a really formative thing for me as a young woman Um, in so many ways. Like, it ignited my love of history, and it also made me confident about public speaking. I I would give these speeches largely to rooms of of older white men, Mm -hmm. and they just had to sit there and listen to me. Right, right, which was when you and (laughs) I For a very long time, they couldn't interrupt me. (laughs) I got to, you know— I got to— That's ideal. It really was spectacular, actually. I mean, there was a time limit, but for that amount of time, that 10 minutes or uh, 5 to 7 minutes, if I was giving one of the speeches on the amendments, I just got to display all of my knowledge. I got to speak. I got uh, to—and I became really confident as a public speaker, which affected my life profoundly. So. And you I, went on to do other work. I went on—yeah. Well, because of the contest, I really wanted to become a lawyer. And then as soon as I got to college, I went to University of Oregon. I registered pre-law, and then I thought, well, I'll just sign up for a drama class mm-hmm. as a, an elective. I had right. been doing theater since I was a little girl, again, because of my mom. And then I just—I got cast in the fall play, and that was it for me. That was it. I love theater. theater. So you developed it over time and then performed it first— Performed it first in 2015, mm-hmm. um, but without the debate. Right. So it was more of a solo One play. Moment show. What yes. happens, just so people don't know, is there's a the play itself, where which is scripted, but you do—it seems not scripted, which is really—I'm sure everything is. I was trying to figure out which parts you were just talking and which parts were completely scripted. But that's why it's so good. Um, and then there's a second part where you bring, up, bring someone out, a young woman. Um, yes. Who you end up debating— Something, correct? Yes. Like some part of the Constitution. Some, yes. I mean, our debate is actually set every mm-hmm. night. We mm-hmm. we always debate whether or not to abolish the United States Constitution yeah. and make a new, better Constitution. Right, right. <laughs> that actively protects human rights, that has positive rights, that protects the planet, and so on. But you debated a, a section of the Constitution, too, correct? The two of you, one night you were debating a certain part of it. Not anymore. When we were developing it, we did. We right. would, like— we practiced all sorts of different debate topics. We would mm-hmm. give impromptu speeches on various amendments mm-hmm. and articles. Um, we we developed it improvisationally, but now we always debate whether to keep or abolish the Constitution. Right, and you bring out a very sharp debater. Oh, and, yes. Um, and, and then you two compete and then see who wins. I think the kid always wins. Is that correct? It's or? actually not true. It was sort of true in the beginning, but I think um, I got better. Uh-huh. <laughs> Because of the kid? Yeah. I yeah. was like, I'm tired of this kid winning. <laughs> right. It's always so, so you just sit there and you're like, that person should run the country. Exactly. That per- oh, every- yes. Yeah. How many people have you had doing that, different people? Well, in New York, we had two debaters mm-hmm. uh, because they have to go to school. Right. Thursday Williams and Rosdeli Ciprian, both mm-hmm. champion debaters, um, different ages. Rosdeli was, well, she was 14 while we were doing the play. Mm-hmm. Thursday was 17. Um, and then I did it in Berkeley with two other amazing mm-hmm. debaters out there. Mm-hmm. And here in Washington? Uh, here in Washington, Rose Deli traveled did with she? us. Did yeah. she? Yeah. They really kick your ass, I have oh. to say. <laughs> 
I feel like you have to come back to see how much better I've gotten. <laughs> All right, okay. Well, whatever. When I saw it, <laughs> well, I was like, oh, Another that's... interesting thing happened, which is that when we first started performing the play, people always voted to keep the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And then things started to shift, and people started voting to abolish more and more often, regardless of who was debating, like, right. reg- regardless of whether I was making that argument or the young person was. And we tried to pay attention to why— mm-hmm. And what it felt like to us is that when things were really bad and mm-hmm. it didn't seem like the Constitution was protecting working. us or working or the, the, or at least our lawmakers crisis, were not right. the immigration crisis mm-hmm. um, during the Kavanaugh hearings, I think recently where it feels like the impeachment <laughs> clause is not being deployed, right, um, right. it felt like we need we need something uh, people seemed ready to start so all So your audience yeah. is becoming more distressed. I think so. Over the course of working on the play, I became aware just how flawed the document is mm-hmm. and how a part of its genius, which is to be, in fact, so—it's so lean. <laughs> it's so— um, Unspecific. Yeah. Is also—can be, I think, for the people who were— not originally counted in the Constitution, which is most of us, right? Mm-hmm. Really, the only people who were considered citizens at the beginning were white property-owning men. Mm-hmm. For the rest of us, it's kind of silences, and the idea that it's a it's a neutral document um, is a problem. Mm-hmm. It wasn't created to protect us, mm-hmm. and we've had to, you know— the, the, Reinterpret it. We've had to reinterpret it. Um, you know, a civil war had to be fought so that it could protect the people it originally didn't protect, the mm-hmm. people it originally considered property. Um, there's had to be just a lot of hard work and, uh, frankly, people have had to die, in mm-hmm. fact, to make this document uh, a better document. So I, yeah, I just, because my goal, when I, when I, when I finally understood what my play was about, I, I realized at some point, probably around seven years ago, that what I wanted to do is trace the lives of the women in my family. Uh, I wanted to look at the lives of the women in my family through the lens of the Constitution, like which Supreme Court cases affected them, like mm-hmm. how did this document uh, help them move forward? How did it fail them? <laughs> How does it um, right. address their lives? Let's about that part of the play, because yeah. I think it doesn't come out of a left field at all. It actually fits really well, but tracing uh, the lens of American women, and inc- especially your family. Yes. A lot of abuse. A lot of— A lot of abuse, mm-hmm. yes. Well, yeah, so the prompt I gave myself when I started making the play is I remembered that the thing I was always taught— is that in order to win, you had to find a personal connection between your life and the document, which— mm-hmm. In order to win these— In order to win these competitions, right. get the money, get to right. college. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, when I was a teenager, I didn't know how to to do that, uh, to genuinely make that connaction. Right. I right. think I—, I you make it up. a lot of platitudes. Yeah. I, listen, I, I write essays up. with my sons, uh, 14 <laughs> yes. and 17 right now, and I'm like, that's not real. Like, you, that's not what you <laughs> yes. act— I, Like, what do you— The other night, I was like, what do you actually feel? Yeah. And, of course, they don't have that many life experiences to actually have that, which was interesting. Which right. Is like, so I was like, okay, just make it up. Like, it was interesting, but they didn't have the connection. No, I think—I mean, honestly, I think it's hard for a human— That's a lifelong human struggle, mm-hmm. right, is right. to actually keep— Understanding how you really feel about things, what right. your real relationship is to the world, right. is um, is really hard work. Right. Uh, 
So I thought, what if I went back and actually did that work, like mm-hmm. actually looked at the document and the way it connects to my life personally? Like, what if I, I did that for real? And so, of course, the first thing I decided was, well, okay, the, the clearest thing right now is that, um, you know, I'm a woman who's had an abortion. Um, birth control has been a very important part of my life. Like, mm-hmm. why don't I start with those cases? Mm-hmm. So I did that. And then as I sort of started moving through my family history, I realized, you know, I have a, a long history of domestic violence in my family. It very much affected um well, the lives of so many of the women on my maternal side. Mm-hmm. Um, and I grew up watching my mom deal with the repercussions of the right. um, physical and sexual abuse she suffered as a child. And so I realized that I had no idea what the Constitution had to say about that, right? Right. <laughs> if anything, mm-hmm. what that connection might be. And when I started looking into that, I that was maybe the first moment that I realized just how profoundly the lacking, in my opinion, the document was right. in terms of protecting women. And it was also the first time I realized why my mom was so upset when the Equal Rights Amendment was not ratified. Right, right, absolutely, which was an amendment, for those who don't know, uh, which was supposed to add an amendment to the Constitution to reinforce equal rights under the law. Well, yes. the 14th Amendment, actually. Well, the, the 14th I mean, Amendment should have done it. The 14th Amendment should have done it. Yeah, I um, used to uh, carry the 14th Amendment with me all the time. Uh, because when during the gay marriage thing, um, yes. and they were like, you want special rights. I go, would you like to read the 14th Amendment? It's equal rights under the law. Like, yes. And it was interesting. And they're like, oh, it does say that. I'm like, yes, it does. Yes, it does. So, yeah. We're here with Heidi Schreck, the writer and star of What the Constitution Means to Me. We're going to take a quick break now, and we'll be back after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline, because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And we're back with Heidi Schreck, the writer and star of What the Constitution Means to Me, an amazing play that she wrote. 
One of the things uh, today, now let me be clear, you're not a constitutional scholar. But I am you, not. you know a whole lot about the Constitution more than most people. And you actually handed out copies at the at the show I was at. I do. I hand them out every night. I already ha- carry a copy, but I, anyway, I always pull it out, like <laughs> just when people do. And the reason I pull it out today, it, it, do you have a, a, a favorite amendment? Because I want to bring it into today, because right now, your show is, it, you know, I almost want you to keep doing it, because right now we're in constitutional crises where the president keeps violating what seems to be in the the impeachment clause and it, with related to tech i think the first amendment is yes. i'm uh, tonight i'm on a panel at georgetown about social media and the first amendment it's never been more relevant the constitution yeah. in so, uh, so many of the amendments so many parts of it so talk a little bit about that like your your show became more and more pertinent as the trump administration which is when you were performing it most of the time yes my favorite amendment is the, also the 14th amendment <laughs> i share that with you i mean it's just an incredibly powerful amendment. Mm -hmm. Uh, As you know, it was one of the Reconstruction Amendments. So it was after the Civil War, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments uh, were created in order to guarantee uh, freedom to former slaves, Mm -hmm. uh, guarantee their citizenship, protect their right to vote, guarantee them uh, equal protection of the law. Um, The 14th Amendment also repeated some of the due process clause of the 15th Amendment, which guarantees a right to life, liberty, uh, and property. What does it mean to have equal protection of the law? What does it mean to have a right to life? I feel like those concepts need to include a safe planet. They need to include living in a country where you're not under constant threat of gun violence. They need to include the right, in my opinion, to health care. Mm-hmm. It ought to include the right to protection from gender-based violence. But so far, it's very difficult to get the court to interpret so that, why, those why things do you that think way. That is? Why do you think that is? Because life is a very open-ended word. Well, right. Happiness is a very open-ended yes, word. Ha- who's happiness <laughs> and what do you mean? I sure. think that's probably the point of it is that it gets to be interpreted by different generations. I think Jefferson had a pretty good quote on that, like that you shouldn't take my interpretation as the correct one. Yes. I mean, I I do think it's too open-ended. I discovered while making the play that, you know, 112 constitutions that, you know, have explicit protections for the planet written Mm -hmm. into them. 179 constitutions have explicit gender protections written into them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our constitution doesn't operate that way. It's a negative rights document. Mm -hmm. It was designed to protect the people who made it um, and their property, uh, Mm -hmm. their property that was sometimes human beings Mm -hmm. from the government. And so we don't have these explicit human rights protections in our constitution. I personally would love to see a movement to pass some amendments to have more explicit protections for the planet and for people in our constitution, but it's not how our constitution yeah, works. Yeah, so we, did you become more disheartened as you were doing the play or more hopeful? I couldn't tell. <laughs> I Really, my feelings changed from night to night. Yeah. Both. I mean, honestly, some nights I came to the theater so discouraged. Because there was news happening because that there was all news. constitutionally based, right? Yes. I was so... Um, I remember when the Kavanaugh hearings were happening, I I watched Dr. Blasey Ford testify, and I was very emotional watching her testify and then thought, I really don't want to go do this play tonight. I feel too—I feel despair. Mm -hmm. I feel despair that, like, this country is never going to change when it comes to treating uh, sexual assault toward women as something that we should care about. But then I went to the theater, and, and, you know, I was in a room of people who were— 
largely feeling the same way. And mm-hmm. there was something um, cathartic about really processing all of that with a group of people and also going back and looking at it historically. Mm-hmm. Like, this isn't an anomaly, what right. we're all going through right now. That no. The seeds were planted a long time ago. This is a, lo- a larger historical, <laughs> you know, it just, it has its roots many, many centuries ago. And and performing the play also real- makes me realize the ways in which we have moved forward and also just galvanizes me to want to do more. I mean, the fact is we we still do, as far as I can tell, live in a democracy. We still have power. Mm-hmm. We still, uh, you know, political movements have power. And so performing the play, just the act of it, the act of having to to do it gave me hope, I think. And then realizing how many other people seem ready to actively try to address these things gave me hope, too. I want to ask you about the First Amendment in this debate about what we can and can't say, including on the Internet. The text of the amendment says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So it says Congress shall make no law. And I often point out to people, it doesn't mean Facebook shall make no law. It doesn't mean Twitter shall make no law. It doesn't mean Reddit shall make no law. Talk a little bit about that. Well, I I, yeah, it's such a complicated question. My tendency is to— Speak. To speak, to to, to support free speech in Mm -hmm. all of its forms, even if it's— hurtful speech, even Mm if, you know, the the times that people have come after me on Twitter, it is one of the cornerstones of a democracy is Mm -hmm. that people have the right to speak out. But Mm -hmm. I also uh, agree with you that um, that doesn't mean that private companies shouldn't be held accountable by Mm -hmm. the people, by their customers, Mm -hmm. for allowing um, hateful speech, violent speech, um, threatening speech on Mm -hmm. their platforms. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I think a lot of harm mm-hmm. has um, been done because of the lack of oversight on some of these platforms. And I feel like it's the responsibility of a company, if they want to be ethical, mm-hmm. to have some guidelines around speech. And mm-hmm. I don't think that's um, a violation of the First Amendment. So people won't be able to see you on stage in this play again, but can people see it online? Have you done a taping of it? We have filmed it. <laughs> um, and we're not sure where it will air yet, but mm-hmm. we do. We ha- we are in the middle of actually making a film of it. Okay, so, yeah. a, a, a performance or, or just a, a special one? Um, we we filmed it at the Hayes at the mm-hmm. Helen Hayes on Broadway, mm-hmm. and then um, we're filming in a couple of other like smaller locations, and mm-hmm. then we'll we'll create a performance film out of that. Oh, that's great! Yeah, you could, you could dress up and exactly. go to. Mount Vernon. <laughs> you to Monticello. Right. Did you? Yeah. We Monticello. did talk about going to an actual American Legion Hall. Yeah. Uh, to maybe film in there. Have which, you been inside one since then? Since you won your. I have been in the one in my hometown. Right. Yes. Um, Is it still there? Oh yeah, it's still there. They've yeah. actually. It's much nicer than when I was there. They've remodeled and they have mm-hmm. a lot. You know, it's much more modern. So, what do you want to do next? I mean, wh- I want to talk about the sort of the impact of theater. Do you feel that theater still has this impact? I mean, I know most 
of my life, and I, I'm an avid theater goer, it has whether it was Rent or Angels in America or even Candide when I was a little kid or yes. Lily Tomlin when I, I was a really little kid. She had a peering night. She was in a play. Uh, you know, in, uh, Search for Intelligence. Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I said, there was one before that that she did oh. called Appearing Nightly that was amazing. And, uh, you know, I, my mom took me when I was a kid. She's a big theater goer. And so it created a love of theater for me. And I, I wrote about it for the Washington Post Theater and everything else. But it's always been revelatory. Can you sort of, in this day and age, how do you feel about theater? Like where, what impact has? Obviously, Hamilton had a huge effect. I'm yes. going to see one at Arena Stage. I'm doing a panel. It was on privacy. Theater, you know, whether you think about Arthur Miller or The Crucible, everything yes. has it. Can you talk about it today, what it's like being a performer in this sort of high, twitchy age? Uh, first of all, I also—my mom also took me to theater mm-hmm. when I was a little kid, and that's how I fell in love with theater. So mm-hmm. I, I very much relate to that, and I've loved it my whole life. I think theater is uniquely powerful right now, actually, mm-hmm. because it is—it's an experience you have communally with mm-hmm. other people. Right. Um, it's durational. Mm-hmm. You have to sit and, like, experience something over the course of, you know, an hour and a half or three hours or eight hours, depending on what you're watching, instead of just clicking through Twitter mm-hmm. and having your mind race from thing to thing after a couple of seconds. And I also think it's a um, an experience a lot of us crave right now, which is mm-hmm. just to be in a room with other people physically mm-hmm. and also spend time actually Paying attention. Paying attention, mm-hmm. yeah. And also, there's just incredible theater happening right now. Um, there's a play going that just went up on Broadway called Slave Play by mm-hmm. Jeremy O'Harris. Uh, there's a brilliant play by Jackie Sybil's Drury called Fairview. Mm-hmm. Um, both, both of those authors are young black playwrights, and both of those plays really question deeply <laughs> the history of our country and— um, and the idea of race and white supremacy. And I, I just feel like there are incredible plays happening right now where people are having deep and profound conversations about what this country is mm-hmm. and, um, and frankly, the, the inherited trauma mm-hmm. uh, so many people have Depending in this on country. what the issues. I mean, I remember, yeah. you know, during the AIDS crisis, that was a big deal. Yes. It changed people. It, it absolutely, absolutely changed, changed people. people. Like, yes. Do you think it it has a resurgence? But how do you get people who are twitchy? Like you didn't have that experience in the theater. I mean, I just saw Moulin Rouge, and it was so visually arresting. Yes. It was hard to look at anything else, obviously. Right. But one of the things is in theater, a lot of people, friends of mine that are in theater, say they, they have a hard time getting people to pay attention. It's harder with with people's attention span, especially young people's. Now, my kids. Let's go to the theater. I brought them to the theater. Um, but I still, you know, it's a challenge in terms of getting them to f- really feel the visceral feeling of being in a physical place doing a communal, a communal experience, artistic experience. Sure. I don't know. I found so many young people have come to the play and, and have been very moved by it. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if they're on their phones while they're watching it. I feel like they have, you know, young people have different brains than, mm-hmm. than we have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> don't you disallow it? Very po- I mean, yes, technically it's disallowed. Right. But, like, I'm sure there are kids out there probably checking their phones while mm-hmm. they're watching things. And I don't know. Maybe it doesn't—maybe their brains are able to take in more information <laughs> at right. one time than mine. But I certainly have found in the my experience in the theater— is has been one of deep engagement from the audience. And I don't know if that's because the stories I'm sharing are so personal and 
I certainly know that I've I've talked to lots of young people and lots of women or women identifying people after the play who felt like their own stories were being told. I think because so many people have stories that relate to sexual violence, that relate to physical violence, that relate to reproductive choices. So I think there's something about the kind of stories I'm telling that people have not seemed to have any problem Understanding attention. So in this age, I want to finish up, in this age of sort of, again, twitchy, immediate, YouTube, streaming, where does theater fit from your – you're not an expert. Just as an an actor, as a playwright, as someone who's devoted their lives to, you know, um, some people in the theater I talk to are very disheartened. Others are like, there's never been a better time for doing this because – I am in the there's never been a better time camp. I just feel like there's the American playwriting right now uh, Mm -hmm. is— Like television, too. Television, too. I think there's incredible television going on, Mm -hmm. but just to focus on theater. There are so many incredible American plays happening right now, um, uh, especially off-Broadway, like young women, young people of color, um, young trans writers. There's just like a a kind of blossoming, I think, of— and and all of these people are really experimenting with structure. They're um, they're kind of blowing the form wide open. I think um, I just saw this incredible musical at Playwrights Horizons called The Strange Loop, which is this sort of like I, it's so hard to describe. It's this like musical about one one young man's life that just really to me blew the form of the musical open. Um, So I'm very excited about what's happening in theater right now. Thank you, Heidi, for coming on the show. You can follow her on Twitter at Heidi B. Shrek. We're going to take a quick break now, and we'll be back after this to play another interview about tech and politics on stage. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This is Recode Decode. I'm Kara Swisher. Now we're going to play an interview I recently conducted with Seema Sueko and Sharon Rostein. They are, respectively, the director and writer of a play called The Right to be Forgotten, which is currently at the Arena Stage in Washington, D.C. Seema and Sharon, welcome to Recode Decode. So Thank I you. saw this play last night. I was blown away by it. I did not. Thank I grabbed you. you and made you come in here for, for <laughs> at the last minute because this was a really important play. I've been dealing with this stuff all week. I've been I write about it a lot, and it was really a beautiful dramatization of the problems. Um, and and I've seen Dear Evan Hansen. I've seen a couple of things that sort of deal with with issues like this. Sharon's the playwright. Uh, talk a little bit about how you decided to do this and your background. You have a you have a TV background. Yeah, um, I have spent the past five years uh, writing and producing on the USA legal drama Suits. I actually started writing this play, Right to be Forgotten, right before I got hired for Suits. Mm -hmm. It was right when the news was coming out of the European Union about the Right to be Forgotten, and I became really— And you were a TV writer, just a TV—did you create Suits? Well, I was a playwright. No, I definitely— No. My boss is somewhere going, where? No, I did not create Suits. Aaron Korsh created Suits. Um, But you were a playwright, and you decided to do some TV writing. Yeah, 
I was a playwright. Uh, I was living in New York. I'd been doing um, a lot of different theater mm-hmm. stuff. And I'd been going out. They call it the water bottle tour. You go out to L.A. Everybody gives you a water bottle. And, you know, <laughs> they, they pretend they've read your stuff. Um <laughs> And uh, I had just finished, I had just had a play that finished running off-Broadway, and I was thinking about what was next. Mm-hmm. And um, these headlines coming out of the European Union were fascinating to me. I just, had, had you ever yeah. been a technical person, or did you—why would they be fascinating no. to you? Not many people are fascinated by European privacy law. Yeah. I'm about super the cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I don't have a tech background at all. I ha- I have a— degree in public health, and I've always been really interested in just issues of social responsibility um, and politics and kind of the ideas about what do we owe each other. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So just this, I mean, just the the wording of it, the right to be forgotten, the idea that people would want that right or need that right, I thought Mm -hmm. was pretty fascinating. And also at the time, I'd become really interested in lobbyists, and I'd been following this New York Times expose about lobbyists. you know, dealing with state AGs, and mm-hmm. now it seems like very quaint kind of right. scandal. Yeah, you but, got those um, lobbyists <laughs> down pad. Those yeah. are all these I have met from all oh, the really? tech companies. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, you really do. They're yeah. a little slicker than the lobbyists yeah. that the tech companies have, but pretty close. Yeah. Pretty close. And Seema, how did you get involved? Because you were developing the play then. Well, um, Sharon's agent, Di- mm-hmm. Diana Glazer over at ICM, sent the script over to me. I think it was last year or a year and a half ago, just saying this sounds like something that Arena Stage might be interested in. And I read it, and right away, she had sent me three different scripts, actually, uh, by di- three different writers. And right away, I said, yes, this one I want. Now explain your background of how you, you, you've she, been directing. Oh, sure, yeah. So I work as the deputy artistic director at mm-hmm. Arena Stage. Under Molly. Under Molly, Molly Smith, yeah, the artistic director. And and um, I've been working as a director, I guess, for now a decade or so. I can't quite put all the numbers together right now. Mm-hmm. And as deputy artistic director, one of the things I do is help to drive the season planning process. So uh, when I received the script, um, I loved it immediately, sort of pushed it forward to our artistic team and felt quite passionately that it was an important uh, show to be in Washington, D.C. So talk about what Arena Stage does. I remember it was so when yeah. Delta Fitchhandler ran it and everything. I, I, for those who don't know, I, I worked for the Washington Post. I wrote a lot about theater in Washington. Mm-hmm. And Arena Stage was the biggest one, but it wasn't very big. It was a rather small theater run by a very uh, outsized personality, Zelda Fitchhandler, and, and there were several Joy Zinnemann ran studio, but original plays were part of it, like finding original voices. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Molly Smith has been the artistic director since 1998, mm-hmm. and uh, um, uh, she started to reframe the mission when she when she got to Arena Stage, really focusing on American voices, American writers, American stories, in all its diversity and multiplicity of ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been diving deep into political content. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the red meat of Washington, D.C. And so a lot of our the plays we do and a, a lot of the things that our audiences love deal with big political issues, um, multiple perspectives, uh, things that they're grappling with. You mm-hmm. know, our audience is made up of a lot of D.C. attorneys and lobbyists themselves, uh, as well as regular folk. And they're some of the smartest audiences I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Give me an example of some that oh, you've looked at. Like, what topics? Oh, my gosh. So, let's see. Uh, we've dealt with issues like um, 
Well, we have this power play commissioning initiative where mm-hmm. we've commissioned, we're commissioning 25 new plays or musicals that deal with the people, moments, or ideas who have shaped who we are as Americans. Um, the topics have ranged from things like Mary Catherine Nagel, who's a Native American writer mm-hmm. and wrote a play called Sovereignty. It's amazing. Uh, yeah, I saw it. Yeah, yes, yeah, it deals with... Andrew um, Jackson. Andrew exactly. Andrew Jackson, yeah. Yeah, sovereignty of the nation and sovereignty of the female body mm-hmm. were, were some of those topics. Uh, we um, have a commission coming up that we'll be producing later this season by Eduardo Machado called Celia and Fidel, which is about, uh, takes place in the 1980s. It's uh, Fidel Castro and Celia Sanchez, who was uh, his right-hand woman in the revolution. And it sort of looks at what happens when a revolution fails. Um, we have commissions uh, that are focused on Black Wall Street, uh, commissions that have been focused on JQA in the past production of The Originalists, which was about Antonin Scalia. Mm-hmm. Another one, uh, Camp David, is another one of the power plays that we That's where they're uh, not having the produced. G7, right? Because okay. yeah, yeah, yes. right. <laughs> the Doral is... Until, until it's Trump's Camp Trump David. Trump, right, exactly. <laughs> right. That's what they should do. They should put his name on we it. They just want to do it there. Paint oh, things yeah, gold. Cold, yeah. <laughs> so, you, so, you, so you're looking for new shows. And, and had you done many tech-related shows? No. This was all new territory for me and uh, a real delight to be able to dive into and uh, dive into the issues and meet content experts who are dealing with this on a daily basis. Right. Um, We have a subscriber. His name is Chris Wolf. Mm -hmm. He's a privacy attorney here in D.C. And early on when we announced the show, he bought like 30 tickets. Mm -hmm. And we were like, who is this person buying 30 tickets? Mm -hmm. And we, uh, you know, Googled him and found out that he does privacy law. So I reached out to him and said, hey, you know, I'm directing this play. I've got a lot of research to do. Would you meet with me? And not only did he meet with me and um, share a lot of research and and, um, expertise in the area, he then introduced me to the landscape of folks working in D.C. covering issues dealing with the right to be forgotten. So folks like um, the Electronic Privacy Information Center or Center for Democracy and Technology, Mm -hmm. Future of Privacy Forum, uh, and all of these individuals, the ACLU, the FTC, they were— People at Google. People at Google who we met with. Yeah, they were really generous with— giving their time to have a conversation. So, Sharon, talk about, so people at Google, you just said that, you talked yeah. to them. Talk about, because it centers around the search engines and yeah. what, what you're looking. Explain what the right to be forgotten law is, just for people who don't know. It's a European law. Yeah, it's a European law. I'm probably going to get this all wrong. Um, I will but, Great. Uh, it's a European law that basically says that uh, citizens of the EU, and Britain has this now too, can petition Google to have links about themselves delisted. Mm-hmm. And if... Google doesn't delist it, they have the option to challenge that in the courts. Right. And uh, it is a right we just, we don't have here, and Mm -hmm. a lot of experts think we'll never have here because it runs up right against First Amendment rights. Mm -hmm. And so, talk about the development of the play. So, you write this play about about these topics, and what's so interesting is you manage to get very, essentially, technical, ethical, and philosophical issues and legal issues into this one story, which I think it replicates itself all over the place in different instances. But this is a story of someone who did something when he was a kid that was not, was unfortunate, and then he got, and badly behaved, and then he, it continued to live with him and carry with him. So whenever he met someone, they would Google him, and they would not want to go out with him, or job issues and, and stuff like that, even though much of the information had been twisted over time. 
Yeah. I was really interested in making it as complicated as possible because I think sometimes when we read about these things, the newspaper, whatever, we are often presented with the simplest Right. Oh, it's a stalker. Yeah. Why should he get off? It's revenge porn. It's a stalker. And I think um, those definitely exist, obviously. But at the same time, I think a lot of what's out there is just super complicated because humans are super complicated. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was interested in a story where the character did something wrong, but also there's a lot of exaggeration and lies about him. Uh-huh. And and a big part of this uh, play is about how do we deal with those complexities and also the complexities of human memory mm-hmm. and just different experiences. We all experience situations in different ways. Sure. Um, but when it goes online, in, it takes on a life it of its own. It takes on a life of its own. Right. Um, and I, it's a fact yeah. it's mixed in with fiction. Right. And, and, and how do we... How do we And then you decide? have reaction and action and reaction and constant enragement. And I think that's a lot of it's about enragement, that you read something and then it, it's you don't quite know if it's true, but you assume it is, and therefore you have a reaction based on possible false information. Yeah. And and that that, you know, also leads into this question of forgiveness, mm-hmm. right? Forgiveness and reconciliation. And these are things that don't often happen online. Mm-hmm. Online, You know, we've kind of constructed an internet, to me at least, feels that's very much at odds with uh, reconciliation and forgiveness. And so I think I wanted to create a play that dealt with all of these issues and really talked about what happens when our humanity butts up against our technology. Mm-hmm. And when I was writing the play, I just started doing research. I picked up the phone and I called Jonathan Zetrain at mm-hmm. Harvard, who's yep. an expert, and I thought, this guy will never call me back. They all call you back. He was lovely. He was yeah. so lovely. He just got on the phone with me. He talked to me through all of these issues of privacy. And um, and I thought also, this was five years ago when I started writing it, I thought, oh, this play is, no one will be interested in this play. No one will want to do this play. It's about right to be forgotten, which most people in this country still don't know what that is. And But um, what I found was that after the election— sure. Suddenly, Perfect timing. people were a lot more awake. So yesterday, Mark Zuckerberg talked about um, free speech and what you should be able to say. And your Google character is talking about that, the right to remember, the right not to whitewash. I don't think the Internet is whitewashable um, in many ways. But talk about that side of it, because the the idea that, that you should be able to have, you know, Mark was saying everything should be all or nothing on free speech. How do you look at that? Yeah, I mean, I I don't buy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, first and foremost, I don't buy it. Um, I, I certainly don't buy it when it comes to Facebook and social media. Um, I think you also have to. We also have to pay real attention to um, who's using social media. You know, I have two kids. They're they're not quite in social media land yet, but they will be soon. And it's, you know, I think that if we have uh, these platforms that are particularly used by minors, um, you know, one of the big things of this play is that the character was a minor when he did this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that then these companies have an even bigger responsibility to say there has to be a way for you to erase, you know, the the mistakes you made when you were a kid on this platform. So, yeah, I mean, I think that draping uh, these companies draping themselves in the First Amendment. Yeah, they love to do that. Yeah, it's their I outfit. think it's a real misunderstanding <laughs> of of the First Amendment and also the way that historically we in this country have regulated media. Mm-hmm. It's very uh, it's very blind to mm-hmm. our history of regulating media, and we as normal human beings have to start calling these companies out for that. I, it's something that has been really interesting to me as I've done research and 
been writing this play is there is a lot of uh, acronyms and terms that people who know a lot about tech law and privacy law like to use. Mm -hmm. And I think they actually make things very unclear to most of us. You know, a lot of the experts we spoke to said, well, you can't actually uh, remove things from the internet. You delist. Mm -hmm. And I kept getting that note. And I was like, but to 99% of us, there's no difference. We, mm -hmm. I don't, you know, I don't know what the difference is between delisting. And, um, and I think that there is this divide between the, the language of the tech companies and the privacy experts and the language most of us use about the internet. And so a big part of something uh, of the play is just, let's just make this human. Let's just talk about how the internet and the way we've built the internet affects us all on a very human, everyday level. Right. So talking about it, I see in being directing this and getting it to a place that is understandable for people, you know, when you say tech, like, blah, like it's hard to do. You know, there's very few plays that work out really well that I can think of that actually can deal with what is probably one of the biggest issues of our day, like the impact of, of technology on all of us. Yeah, well, first of all, it's a great text. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Sharon has created these wonderful characters who they're clear in their intentions and what they want to do, and they also are full-bodied human beings. So talk beings. about the characters. There's main yeah. character. Talk about each yeah. of them very briefly. So uh, Daryl Lark is our protagonist. He's our young man who wants to get this thing off the Internet. Um, he enlists an attorney, a privacy attorney. He finds her name is Marta Lee, and she's an individual who's um, been passionate about consumer protection issues and uh, sees the threat of what's going on with these corporations and and uh, has been sort of waiting for the right case. And losing. And yeah. losing, yes. Right. yes. Before. Exactly. There's an Amazon case she loses. Yes, an NSA hacker case. Yeah, so she's uh, been waiting for the right thing to come along. And after putting him through the ringer, because, you know, she her first line is, I um, believe women mm -hmm. always, and that's part of the issue, uh, that he stalked a woman. Yeah, you make it a difficult topic. A very difficult topic. Mm -hmm. So she kind of puts him through the ringer to make sure, you know, is he worthy? Mm -hmm. uh, but did he really do this? Which it's yes and yes for her, and she pursues the case. So for her, that means going to the state attorney general. So that's our, another character we meet, Alvaro Santos, who's up for re-election. It's a tight race, and he needs something to push him over the edge, and maybe this might be the thing. There's a, a lobbyist who works for uh, the trade associations, represents the tech companies, Annie Zahirovich. She is uh, the refugee from Bosnia, been in the U.S. since she was 10 years old. And for her, it's both personal and professional, the right to remember. Uh, not erase uh, the war crimes is very important to her as well as it's her job. And she's very well paid. She's very, very well compensated. And she's compensated to protect these these companies' rights to do anything they want. That is part of her job, yeah. Right. And then we also meet two women. The play starts with Daryl Lark out on a first date, somebody he met online, and he gave a false name. And it's a date that is going so well mm -hmm. uh, until, and so well that he wants to tell her his real name. Uh, and of course, it's in that moment he realizes she will never call again. Mm -hmm. And finally, we meet the woman he stalked mm -hmm. uh, 10 years ago, Eve Selinsky. And um, it's a potent scene, Sharon's written, where the truth... And the pain of being stalked for three months is very visceral for her even 10 years later. And also the truth and the pain of him not being able to escape this for 10 years is also very visceral. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's in a play that's so much about technology, at the end of the day, it's 
each of these characters have to come face to face with the their humanity, the good and the bad of it, and what it means to connect with another human being in a real way. Mm-hmm. And that's part of it, the connect, the idea of connection. You, it's a beautiful set, by the way. It's, it's yeah. it reminds you a little of the Dear Evan Hansen set, which is interesting. But you have the Munzers, but it's actually very little about technology. Right. Yeah. There's there. It's it's about the impact of technology, really. Yeah. I, I mean, it's really uh, about uh, the way that technology can trap us all. I mean, I think that when you start thinking about the way that technology, um, that the internet traps you at whatever, <laughs> what at a, at a certain moment in your life, mm-hmm. um, and that might mean that you are. Uh, portrayed forever as a victim. It might mean you, when you don't want to be. It might mean you are portrayed forever as a perpetrator, even after you have repented and changed your life and who you are. And so a lot of a lot of the play is about this connection we really can only have face-to-face. And I worry that we don't do that as much as we need to. We're here with Seema Sueco, who is the director of a play called The Right to be Forgotten, and also its playwright, Sharon Rothstein. It's at arena stage right now, and it's a really—where uh, is, is it going? Where, is, where else is it going? It'll be at arena stage. It's been developed there. Yep. Right? And then uh, there's going to be a production at Victory Gardens Theater in Chicago in May and June. Mm-hmm. And then— and then we'll see. I mean, uh, just today, what I was doing earlier today was getting on my horn and emailing a whole bunch of artistic directors across the country about the show mm-hmm. and saying we're in great previews. You need to know I pointed out your tweet <laughs> <laughs> to everybody. It was like, Kara Swisher likes this play. Oh, it's an amazing play. It's <laughs> so, an astonishing play. So I hope it has a long life. So, you know, one of the things is things change. The technology changes and everything else. And one of the hard parts about this is how much as it starts to morph even more, you know, when we have VR, AR, we have facial recognition, it starts to get really and deep fakes, and then we have the videos that could be made. It starts to get really problematic. It does. And it, and it is, I mean, <laughs> I'm wearing glasses today because I've had an eye twitch for the past mm-hmm. month because I've had to do so many rewrites as <laughs> as new news stories have come out about who's investigating big tech, and it's changed, right. I mean, literally, day by day. I, I'm so it was coming, part I'm like, two, oh, like the Elizabeth Warren <laughs> well, we, I guess we'll, here's hoping. Uh, we'll see what happens. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it is constantly, it's constantly changing. Um, you know, I do think one thing, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I do think one thing that, uh, fortunately or not, will keep the play relevant is I have a feeling that the right to be forgotten might be the last thing we get to when it comes to regulation. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of talk right now in Congress about privacy and, and data control and, and uh, that kind of thing. But it does really seem to me that the right to be forgotten is kind of this uh, third rail. People are right. afraid of it. Um, and because it's so complicated and so convoluted, um, and so I think it's going to be really interesting to see how that one aspect mm-hmm. of Internet regulation plays out. Right, because it's super difficult. I mean, it's almost impossible in this country to do something like that. Talk, I want to finish up talking about that idea of, of second chances and the, because you change it to the right to be forgiven, which a lot of people don't want to do today on the Internet. Like, And I think Donald Trump has coarsened the discussion um, yeah. that it's all attack, 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 and, and you have to. It's sort of hand-to-hand combat right now on the Internet, which has changed We Uh, we seem to be very good at revenge on the Internet, Mm -hmm. but not good at forgiveness, which is probably just also how we are as humans. Mm -hmm. You know, we're very good at shame, blame, uh, threats, um, but 
forgiveness is not a well-exercised process in many individuals and certainly not online. You know, is there a way to do it online? I don't don't know. I think it's something we have to start thinking about. Um, I had done some research in college about truth and reconciliation commissions Mm -hmm. um, after genocides. And a lot of the accounts coming out of those commissions talk about how healing it was for victims. Mm -hmm. And I think that we have to start thinking about a way that we're going to regulate uh, and shape our technology that allows for forgiveness and also allows for us to think twice before we just post some hateful thing. Um, it, It would be awfully nice to have a mechanism whereby a 17-year-old who's about to post something they're going to regret for the rest of their life can pull it down before right. it really hurts people. There's, there's interesting apps like that. Like, do there you are. Want, it's, yeah. the, it's sort of like the drunk app. Like, you have to breathe <laughs> into it, and you can't. Like, there's one. There's yeah. a great line with a girl saying, oh, I was drunk, and then I tweet it, and then I text it, <laughs> right. and, yeah. which was really interesting. I have I go, I go live near a church that says, a tweet, tweet unto others as you would have tweeted unto yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> I was like, good luck getting people to come into the church with that, but well, well played, I thought. Um, but what, one of the things that I think was important in this play was the idea that the real world repercussions of these things, which I don't think Silicon Valley creators think about at all. I don't think they think of consequences when they're like this, which is this person's life is sort of ruined for since at the, there's no redemption available. And real, and real damage, which is death, like people getting killed because of mobs and things like that. Um, do you think—you also are not negative into the technology. Do you think—is there is this a hopeful play? I think it's a hopeful play in that um, I think this play has a lot of heart and humor, and I think that comes from when real human beings have to deal with real human beings. That's more often how we deal with each other. Mm-hmm. And so in, the, in a way, the play is a plea for us to find that element of our humanity and inject it into our technology. And I think we can, and I think we're—I I honestly do think we will. I think it's going to take a while, but I think people are going to get burnt out mm-hmm. on the anger and the hatred online. Um, I think we're seeing it just in the past couple of years. And so I have hope that when we are fully burnt out on all of that, we we can recreate our technology or at least the way we use our technology in such a way that it does do all of the things Mark Zuckerberg likes to say that his technology does, connects people and, and uh, allows us Everybody to share pictures voice. of our, you know, birthdays, um, give people a voice. Uh, but at the same time... Um, it doesn't uh, trap us in so much hate, hatred and vitriol. Mm-hmm. And in terms of, of, of where you imagine the biggest message, and I do think the character of the date to me, yes. the woman who plays, the, she's terrific too, yes. the actress is great, is really important. Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought brought her up because, you know, she bookends the play and she makes a decision irrespective of what's online, mm-hmm. you know, finally in the end. And I feel like when you talk about hope, well, we may, I may not be able to change uh, tech policy on my own. I might not be able to change a cor- how a corporation acts, but I can self-govern myself and I can think about What's the ch- think critically about things and what's the choice I want to make, irrespective of wh- what I see online or because of what I see online, but to be aware of of that. And yes, we have a character whose humanity really shines through and her ability to, to 
think critically for herself. For herself, absolutely. And Leslie Sharon, one of the things, you know, I wish a lot of tech leaders would see this play because uh, I think it's very—you don't— you, they're, they don't come off well, but they don't come off badly. I think one of the problems I have with a lot of them is the lack of self-reflection mm-hmm. of what they're making and the consequences of what happens. And they, and whenever you point out a consequence, they're like, well, if I did it the other way, it would have been this going on. And I'm <laughs> sort of like, yeah, but it went this way. And it's really hard because what happens is because of the size of it, because of the scale of it, iteration just goes mad. Yeah. What would you say to tech leaders if you could, like, what, what message are you trying to get to them? Tech leaders, listen, please. (laughs) (laughs) All tech leaders out there. Um, I think it is awfully easy to sit at one's desk on a screen or to look at a screen on your hand and probably even easier if you are a god of tech and your screen overlooks a beautiful vista and Mm -hmm. it seems very sanitized and away from humanity to forget the real effects of these technologies on everyday people, on everyday kids, and the way that we are now in a place in human history where we will always have this technology, and we need to make decisions based on how would you want this technology to work for your family, for your kid. That's I think that's where we need to start, um, and it shouldn't just be about money-making, and it shouldn't just be about, I, I made this technology because I could. I think um, we need to start I would ask them to start looking at the technology that they're creating in terms of how would I want my kid to use this technology? And hopefully uh, they... Once know, they have kids. Hopefully no, they really like their kids. Can I ask you, do you have a favorite line in the play? Oh, my gosh. There's so many good lines in the play. Uh, where where would I even begin? Um I'm so sorry. I don't. I don't. I love them all. Uh, do you? I'm going to turn it over to you, Sharon. Quick, take the heat off me. What's your favorite? Oh, God. Well, my, my favorite line is, is it's, a, it's a joke line that no one laughs at, which is always the case. But it, it's basically on, on the first date uh, with Sarita, uh, he says that he's always been very socially awkward because this is someone who's really kind of closed down his life for 10 years um, because of what happened to him and the way that the Internet uh, – advertises him to the world, and he says that he's uh, socially awkward, and she says, you don't seem socially awkward to me, and he says, thank you, that might be the nicest thing anyone's ever, and I I just am so tickled by that. (laughs) No one else seems to be, but I am. All right, this is a great show. Thank you, too, so much, uh, Sharon and Seema, for coming on the show. You can follow me on Twitter, at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at HeyHeyESJ. Where can they find you guys online and the show? Well, yes, the Arena Stage uh, website. At Arena Stage, mm-hmm. arenastage.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, hashtag Arena Forgotten. Are you? I have tweeted once. Okay. I tweeted once about the weather. That's, that's okay. That's, that's I think it. that's enough. <laughs> if you like this episode, the play is called The Right to Be Forgotten. It's very easy to find on Google, I can tell you that. Um, it, it comes up with a Mar- uh, Marguerite Vestager column that I wrote. So it's it comes up with that, and that it's really interesting when nice. you put it in. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our newest podcast, Reset. Just search for it in your podcasting app of choice or tap on the link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. 
Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com Fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.